welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy. It's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Angela Panascaltis Moteri. Dr. Moteri is Vice Chair for Research and Professor of the Department of Pediatrics at the Stem Cell Institute and the University of Minnesota. So Dr. Moteri, welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. Thank you for having me. So you have a lot of pioneering studies. You begin this discussion, maybe tell us a little bit about your research interest. Sure. So in my lab, we basically focus on strategies to bioengineer organs and tissues. And two of the main strategies that we use are the what is typically called the D-cell resell method, where intact whole organs are decellularized with a series of detergents and other solutions, and then recellularized. And the idea would be to recellularize an organ using a patient's own stem cell-derived cells in order to create an organ for transplant that wouldn't be rejected by their immune system. Another strategy that we use in the lab for tissues for which, in my opinion, aren't really amenable to this D-cell resell method are to use 3D bioprinting. And so here at the university, I've established uh, a 3D bioprinting facility. We started that three years ago. And in my lab in particular, I have trainees working on bioprinting of trachea, esophagus, skin, and 3D cancer models. Which of these is uh, closer to reality? Well, probably the bioprinting approach, and especially for tissues for which vascularization is not required. That would be for tissues such as cartilage and parts of the eye and tendons, and those types of tissues would be closer to clinical implementation. So I understand that in the D-cell resell approach, one of the big issues is getting new cells into the scaffold without getting clotting. Is that correct? That's correct. So the lung is particularly amenable to the desolarisa method because of its branching geometry and the fact that it has single-layer epithelium in most places as well as, of course, the single-layer endothelium in the vasculature. And so many parts of the lung are actually pretty straightforward to recellularize. The issue has been, though, to recellularize the right cells in the right places. I think the vasculature has been the most straightforward to recellularize, but that would be mostly for those areas of the vasculature that don't have the multilayered other components of the vasculature, such as, you know, the intimon and the pericytes surrounding that and the smooth muscle layers. And so, you know, there are some parts of it that are still very challenging and have not yet been accomplished using this method. But perhaps for some parts of the lungs, it would have to be a combination of resell, desell, and bioprinting, I don't know. So a hybrid approach is something you're considering? So we've been considering that too, yes. So can you share a little bit in terms of issues you may encounter, such as fibrosis? So, of course, anything that is bioengineered and then implanted into a, you know, a living body is going to be subject to possibly attack and rejection, and then immune responses, of course, could lead to fibrosis. And so there's still a lot that is not understood about the body's reaction to these types of bioengineered tissues, which consist of extracellular matrix proteins. And typically for the D-cell resell method, a lot of people have been using decellularized organs from pigs. And so we still don't totally understand what the response is going to be to those types of matrices, even if they are coated with human cells. Certainly over time, those matrix components would be remodeled and replaced with human matrix components. 
but still what the initial response of the body is going to be is definitely not well understood and so probably a lot of the fibrotic mechanisms that happen during normal wound repair and healing would have to be either circumvented or exploited in some cases in order to get the best type of engraftment of the bioengineered organ. So moving over to the 3D printing again, how many components do you have to print? You have to print a scaffold and you have to add growth factors, I presume. Well, you can bioprint with or without scaffolding proteins. Several people use an approach where they're printing cells that can self-assemble and produce their own matrix proteins. Some people print with cells contained in a bioink that consists of a lot of extracellular matrix proteins acting as a scaffold. Still other methods may be to bioprint first a scaffold and then incubate with cells or overlay cells on top of it. It just depends on what tissue it is you're trying to create and secondly depends on what questions you are asking. Are you asking questions about cell behavior on matrix? Are you asking questions about how cells migrate within matrix? So that really informs the design of the construct that you're printing. Many people print with cells contained within a bioink that contain certain scaffolding proteins in order to enable attachment of the cells and then ultimate migration and behavior. And you indicated before that some of the interest areas for this bioprinting is the esophagus and the trachea. Are they likely to be some of the first implants that we'll see in clinical application? No, I don't think so. I think the first applications would be those tissues that do not require vasculature. Because otherwise, trachea and esophagus, unless we solve the vascularization problem, it would be very limited as to what size of tissue you'd be able to implant. So what tissues are likely to be uh, on the early list? On the early list would be cartilage, parts of the eye, such as the cornea, the lens, tendons. Those would be some of the first tissues. Cartilage is certainly a big issue in terms of orthopedic application. Is this something that would be printed and then implanted? Correct. And there's already a lot of effort going into bioprinting cartilage for acute injury repairs for the knee. For chronic injury, that's probably not going to be a good approach, at least right now, just because when you're putting something into a chronically inflamed environment, it's not likely to really succeed over the long term. It'll likely fail. But I think for acute injuries, acute tears, this is something that is most likely to first be used clinically. And then, of course, and that's for articular cartilage. Uh, In my lab, we're working on making the cartilaginous rings of the trachea. And so those are something that could also possibly be used sooner rather than, you know, making the entire trachea, at least printing cartilaginous rings. And the beauty of it is that through bioprinting, you can print tissues in a customized manner, so according to the size and specifications of the patient. And this is highly relevant for the pediatric population because most organs that are available for transplant are adult-sized, and they always have to be modified for implantation in a child. And so bioprinting really lends itself to this customization that will really benefit, I think, I mean, everyone, but in particular, the pediatric population. So how would they be used? Are they used with native trachea or another cell? So they could be used with native trachea in in cases where there's a tracheal stenosis or in some cases of tracheal malacia or tracheal collapse or bronchomalacia where there's bronchial collapse. So this is a possibility here. You know, ultimately, we are trying to make tracheas for and and esophagi even for 
children who have tracheal atresia where they're born with an incomplete trachea. And certainly if you could implant certain parts such as cartilaginous rings that provide the strength of the trachea and give it the mechanical integrity that is required so it doesn't collapse, possibly then perhaps with uh, transplantation of some other sections in order to complete the trachea, that could be an approach before being able to successfully bioengineer an entire trachea is achieved. That's what I see happening, is that we'd be able to implant at least certain pieces that we'd be able to bioengineer. That's very promising. I know there's a lot of hurdles passed before this becomes clinically available, but is this something that might be feasible in, say, five years, or is it longer than that? I think it's longer than that. Things always take longer than you think, you know? (laughs) Just like any lab experiment, you plan it out, and the first time you do it always takes three times longer than you planned. I mean, it's important to be realistic, especially to the patients that require these novel approaches, because you don't want to overhype it, because hope is very important to them, of course, so you don't want to give false hope. So I'm always very conservative on my estimates of timelines. Yes, very appropriate. I understand you also study bone marrow transplant related to lung injuries. Well, interestingly, that's actually how I got into tissue engineering. So I'm really trained as an immunologist. That's my background, and I did postdoctoral work in pathology. And I was initially hired here to study graft-versus-host disease, which is a complication of bone marrow transplantation. And one of the organs that is uh, particularly affected is the lungs. And so in studying the immune mechanisms responsible for this lung injury, we started to think about maybe we could use a cell therapy in order to repair the lungs. In particular, we were using mesenchymal stromal cells, MSCs. And this was back in a time when people thought that MSCs could become almost any cell type, even including epithelial cells, which we now know is not true. But, you know, at the time, we were thinking maybe we can coax these cells into becoming at least certain cell types of the lung. That work then evolved into, well, maybe we should be growing them on tissue scaffolds in order to train them to become like lung cells. And then that became, well, let's just make a lung then (laughs) using bioengineering approaches. And particularly, we start with a D-cell recell method. And then because I was reading the tissue engineering literature, I stumbled upon this 3D bioprinting, and that's how I got into that. So it all evolved from actually being an immunologist. And, you know, if there was a journal back then on immunology and regenerative medicine, the way that this journal is, we could have maybe started down this path a lot sooner. So I really think that this journal fills a gap where this interface of the two fields is going to be critically important in order to achieve successful implantation of these tissue constructs that people are now bioengineering. And also importantly, it provides a mechanism for people to at least convey the knowledge that they've learned and even research that's in vitro done and in studying the interaction between the immune system and regenerative medicine, in particular extracellular matrix scaffolds, for example, which is an area, again, that is really a kind of lag behind other areas of immunology. Speaking of the journal, specifically the Journal of Immunology and Regenerative Medicine, uh, we're doing these podcasts in collaboration with the journal. I want to note that you're a member of the advisory board of the journal, so we thank you for your contribution to making this publication possible. Oh, you're very welcome. It's my pleasure. I think it's a very, very important area to re- be researching right now. So, Dr. Motari, thank you for joining us today, sharing with us your pioneering research. We'll list on the podcast website 
your web link to your website. So if anybody wants to further explore your research, I'll have a link to that information. I want to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine, sponsors this podcast series. Until we meet again, thank you for listening.